My name is Sadia, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Today, I will be interviewing Michael Smith and Claire-Ann Luster. Michael is a South African political economist, and Claire-Ann is a PhD candidate in sociology at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. I'll be chatting with them about life and politics in South Africa. Michael and Claire-Ann, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. It's good to be here. So you've both come to Toronto very recently from Cape Town. Wikipedia told me that Cape Town is one of the most multicultural cities in the world, um, being now in another city that considers itself to be the most multicultural city in the world. What are the initial contrasts that you see between Cape Town and, and Toronto? Well, yeah, it's something quite great to see for us coming from South Africa, which has its history of racial segregation, to see a society that is really so diverse. I mean, if you were to be dropped here, not knowing where you were, it would be very difficult to work out where in the world you are. So that's something that's wonderful to see. Also coming from specifically Cape Town, the amount of things like mixed race couples um, everywhere is something that only in certain areas of Cape Town, you'll see perhaps in Joburg, it's it's different. Joburg is far more multicultural, I would say, than, than Cape Town is or more diverse in spaces. But for me, that's kind of the first thing that I've noticed in terms of multiculturalism. There's still a lot of, you know, de facto segregation in places like Cape Town, which is generally due to the racial zoning of Group Areas Act during apartheid but also enduring economic inequality between people. So where people live and where people hang out can still be very much racialized. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to put it. I think it was quite striking for me to see the um, the level of diversity in Toronto. I was told that it was the most cosmopolitan city in the world, but I didn't quite expect to see this so vividly because Cape Town is, it is multicultural, but as Claire said, it, it's hyper-segregated. So you would have bars and clubs and restaurants that are essentially only white or bars and cl- clubs and so on, which mm-hmm. are essentially only black or so-called colored or so on. And that has to do with our particular legacy. What's interesting for me though about uh, about Canada, the multiculturalist ethic, um, it's quite striking to see how, how much this is promoted in officialese, um, but also during the various criticisms of multiculturalism, the more critical take about what Canada is actually about in the very subtle forms of racism that still mm-hmm. persist underneath the surface. But um, coming from South Africa, coming from anywhere, I think the indigenous issue mm-hmm. is really striking and quite disturbing. The more we, I mean, we've tried to get to know a little bit more about um, Canada's political history and the more we know, the more disturbed we get. Yeah, it's, it's a brutal irony, really, right? So now, after the you know the historical experience of dispossession and, and and so on, now Canada can afford to be this multicultural, open, inclusive um, society. And I mean, South Africa tried to do it. Um, I think it was a massive PR campaign at the transition with the idea of the rainbow nation. Mm-hmm. But of course, in subsequent years, this is this has become highly criticised because, of course, people say there's no black in a rainbow. So that the rainbow nation, you know, that doesn't that doesn't include us as black people in South Africa. 
But also, I mean, the fact, um, as Michael pointed out, you know, where are the indigenous people in in Canada? Because yeah. um, in South Africa, you know, we, you know, the colonialism wasn't complete. I mean, there was to some extent a genocide of the the Khoikhoi people, the Khoisan, who are one would say the indigenous people of the Cape area. But I think it was far more complete mm-hmm. here. Yeah, they, they've the indigenous people have been more successfully erased. Um, you might have seen on the subway, uh, there's advertisements for a um, exhibition. And the exhibition is titled Mandela Struggle for Freedom. Have you guys not come across yeah. posters for it? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the promotional posters have um, are almost exclusively just feel-good quotes from Mandela. And none of the posters have his photo. None of them sort of ma- mention apartheid or racial tension. They just have his name and the name... The letters of the name are, you know, in different African um, textiles of different right. colors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the I guess shwe that, shwe. Yeah. <laughs> the shwe shwe fabric. And what is what is the significance of that? Well, the f- a funny thing is, is that actually I've read recently that actually the the shwe shwe fabric is also something that was brought at some period of colonialism and was then also ap- appropriated as something which is an African or a South African traditional fabric but of course I mean now you'll find that this is all made in China but everywhere you go actually in Africa there'll be like the different prints of fabric which is supposed to be for different sort of tribal groups and so forth so it is it's something that is now you know representative of Africa like a lot of you know dresses and uh, things will be in this shweshwe fabric but when you really trace also where that comes from it tells a very different story yeah and so for it to uh, represent like essential Africanness, sure, yeah. and then for Mandela to then like represent that through mm-hmm. you know these posters in the subways is ironic in in a lot of ways. Um, so one of the quotes that uh, that's on the subway that comes up often, uh, quote by Mandela is, "No one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion." End quote. And so, you know, these sort of things. I guess there is an attempt to get at the Toronto audience, which. Yeah has this multicultural kind of leanings um, and to try to say that, yeah, see, Mandela was always saying that all along and so we have an affinity to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it seems as if, we haven't been to the exhibition uh, yet, but we've seen the posters and we've seen the pamphlets. It seems as if Mandela's being a, a, appropriated in some way to fit into this multicultural mm. uh, um in Canada. But it's not only in Canada that this takes place. To a degree... It happened in post-apartheid South Africa, but it's being challenged by, let's say, the younger generation who are dealing with a, a failed revolution in, in some senses. So Mandela's legacy is being called into question. But this this broader point about the sanitization of Mandela is, uh, is I think, important to reflect upon because, of course, he was incredibly militant as a young activist. He led the armed struggle and he was unapologetic about that. And he was also unapologetic about that after his release from prison, which people don't like to talk about. So it's interesting for us to see this sort of narrative about this peace-loving, forgiving, compassionate man in Canada 
Um, Who was never a communist, of course. Ne never a communist. But the thing about Mandela's politics is also interesting because it evolved over time. There is this debate about whether or not he was a member of the Communist Party, and I think some historians think he was, and some mm. say say he wasn't. But his his direct his, his if you look at his direct quotes, I would say that he was more social so, so, sort of social democrat leaning. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is this document that the ANC uses as a sort of liberation manifesto, which is the Freedom Charter. The Freedom Charter calls for the nationalization of the mines and so on, which is also what Mandela demanded when he was released from prison, which no one likes to speak about either. But he interpreted this as being a means by which you could create a African bourgeois mm. class. Um, but then again, the relationship between the ANC and the communists, the ANC and the Soviet Union, is just never spoken about right. in these Hollywood productions and the narrative about Mandela in the so-called West. Mm -hmm. And then it's also, I mean, you see also the convenient forgetting of then the international community's approach to the ANC and the liberation struggle and Mandela. And I mean, if you look at even Canada as an example, Canada was, you know, supporting the pro-apartheid, mm -hmm. um, anti-communist side um, in the context of the Cold War companies in Canada supplying arms to South Africa and so forth. So it becomes really complicated. And of course, that is also not then spoken about, I mean, I'm sure in the in the Mandela exhibition, um, the fact that he was still on that international terrorist list until, you know, fairly recently. Well, Ahmed Kathrada, who is uh, an SACP veteran and an ANC veteran, I think he was denied a visa to Canada in uh, as recently as 2000 and, yeah, 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, and in the exhibition, and uh, I did go, one of the things was that whenever the word communist would come up, it would be as an allegation that the apartheid government had towards the NC and towards Mandela that was always denied. Oh, um, wow. And so that's how it was framed. And of course, the one of the, the Canada side to what you're saying, Claire, in the exhibition was that Canada was against apartheid, what was one of the leading forces when it was in the early countries to oppose the apartheid regime. It's very interesting and because the narrative in South Africa actually in the, also sort of pushes into the background this Soviet link, the uh, communist ideology which was incredibly influential on the ANC's organizational structure but also on their self-conception, their narrative of liberation. It was very, very influential. Uh, although it was contested. And so you do, I mean, I would imagine so, and maybe Claire, maybe Claire agrees with me, that if the way in which the ANC's liberation struggle is presented to this new generation of South Africa is very similar to the narrative that we get in the West, I'm sure you know, young people would not know that Canada and specifically the US were supporting the apartheid regime right up until, right until, right until the end. Yeah, um, these, these so-called sort of bastions of liberal democracy, Reagan, Thatcher, um, and yeah, it was in 87 that Prime Minister Mulroney denounced the ANC as a violent communist organization. So yeah, this kind of recasting history is something that happens all over the world, and it also happened in South Africa. I mean, I grew up in South Africa, I went to school there. We never learned about the ANC's history in, in exile. We didn't hear about it. We learned about probably the Mandela in the pamphlet in the Canadian exhibition, you know, that's how we learned about the transition and, and Mandela and the ANC. 
then how in in the school system how is apartheid remembered um and how is it constructed of you know its history and its progression towards when it ended what is how is that narrative constructed um i think in our experience as claire said it was it's sort of this very superficial good versus evil struggle mm-hmm. right and then at the same time always with this uh with the ambition to make sure that the next generation embraces this born free born free new south africa sort mm-hmm. of narrative i think that things have become a lot more nuanced and i i haven't seen any history curriculums recently but i do know people working on on making sure that the narrative is a lot more sophisticated and nuanced because they have to because there's deep frustration in South Africa at the moment so mm. as i said earlier mandela mandela's legacy certainly for people of our generation is in is in the dark so you would find if you get into a conversation in South Africa with politically minded people you might find the accusation that mandela sold out the revolution and it's you know there's sort of this there is a sort of a, a revisionist history which says that well if only robert subukwe who was mandela um they were once comrades but uh, he eventually became leader of the pan african congress which is uh the anc's rival in exile if only robert subukwe led the struggle or if only steve biko who was head and of the chris black Hane. or chris hani and, and then there are conspiracy theories about chris hani was a, a a prominent communist um so it's actually quite a productive productive moment in South Africa mm. where you know these frustrations are actually forcing us to reckon with our history in a in a far more accurate way i think there's great opportunity but at the same time there are great risks mm-hmm. but another thing is that history is not a compulsory subject mm. in schools in South Africa which i think is is wrong i think now there there are now discussions about changing the curriculum again and making it compulsory but you can have students who you know at the age of like 12 or something just stop learning about history mm. and and that in itself represents a huge issue because then there's no conversation at all and you can go your entire teenage life without actually knowing anything about you know apartheid apart from maybe what you hear in your communities or maybe what a politician you know shouts at you and and yeah so it's and actually that's a great risk because that because that lays the foundation for these conspiracy theories mm-hmm, or right. the romanticization of other struggle figures and so on mm-hmm. and so when you guys are talking about mandela does that mean that across the political spectrum there is engagement with mandela's legacy however like you know because you're saying on the left there is a critical this critique of him in the mainstream there is i guess a you know celebration of him as a hero and towards the right of the spectrum is is there any engagement with mandela's legacy or mandela as a figure what's quite interesting now is that the sort of the liberal the democratic alliance which is a complicated political formation but they build themselves as the the local liberal party um card carrying neoliberals unapologetic although there's some there's some nuance that we can discuss later about that and and tensions within the party but it's interesting because their leader or their leaders are arguing that because because they are resisting this call for greater emphasis on redistribution and economic justice and so on that they are actually carrying the legacy of mandela right that because they are the ones that are talking about forgiveness and compassion and and so on. So that's an interest again it's an interesting way in which his legacy has has lived in curious ways after his death. Yeah, I think that also the the critiques of Mandela need to be also understood within broader structural issues in South Africa. So then the critique of Mandela will come from the 
critique of the shift to the neoliberalist, or it's called GIA, growth, employment and redistribution, was the mm. new economic policy from 1996, whereas before there was the RDP, which was seen as more, well, which was more geared towards social issues like education. What did the RDP stand for? It's a redistribution and development program. So that's where the sort of critique then of Mandela comes and the sellout thing was that it was under your watch, yeah. you know, that this shift happened, this neoliberal shift. Um, and there are many views about how that even happened. It mm. seemed to sort of happen overnight without consultation. And actually, you know, going back to Michael's point about forgiveness. So one of the things that the exhibition talked about a lot was uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and it just showed um, a photo of Desmond Tutu being like brought to tears by some of the testimony that was given. And the sense was that the TRC was a healing balm over the wounds of the nation and people have moved forward. And Kayan, your doctoral work is actually on the TRC. And so what is your sense of the significance of TRC for post-apartheid South Africa? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the TRC can be looked at from many different registers. You know, mm. you've got the TRC in the context of the total transformation of South African society and the state. You've got the TRC at the level of transitional justice or what to do with criminals of gross mm. human rights violations. So you've got the issue of amnesty and what to do with the criminal justice system. And then you've got on the sort of micro interpersonal level, which is, you know, how can I live with my brother of another race? And right. how can I get over the trauma? And, you know, can we have communal or personal reconciliation? So it seems like Canada's sort of focusing on this personal one, which obviously serves a very particular purpose mm -hmm. in Canada, where right. you're trying to do this cultural nation building thing. But of course, there's so many, there's so many other aspects. So with the South African TRC, you had it occurring in the context of civil war, basically, mm -hmm. where you are in the context of this negotiated settlement, where you had the outgoing security forces of the National Party who held a significant amount of power still. You had an armed struggle of the ANC, which developed in the 1960s, which was a massive organization. They had offices, they had training camps all over Africa. Um, so you really had a context of war. And the TRC wasn't something that the state was like, let's have a TRC. It was actually opposed from all angles. The National Party didn't want one. They didn't want their crimes to be exposed. The ANC didn't want to have their crimes exposed because they had also committed gross human rights mm. violations in their own training camps in the context of this war where there was suspicion of infiltration and spies and, you know, th this was the reality. Right. So, so what was the driving force of putting the TRC in place at all? So it was, it actually came out of um, the negotiated settlement, which was happening at the CODESA, the Congress for Democratic South mm. Africa, which was the all the sort of interest, all the fact, all the groups coming together to really discuss what this post-apartheid South Africa would look like. And what came out of there, there was when they were developing the interim constitution. And I mean, the whole, the, the reason why they came to the, the discussions in the first place was the fact that this was a stalemate. Like no one was going to win. People were just dying right. on both sides. So um, various forces led to they actually sitting down at a table and, and discussing these things. And so the, with the development of the interim constitution, 
an amnesty clause was put in. So actually in the interim constitution, one of the last things added at the last minute was that there will be amnesty for crimes of the past. Mm. So actually there wasn't a focus on truth and there wasn't a focus on reconciliation at all. It was actually focused on amnesty, um, which basically meant if there was a blanket amnesty that everything would be laid to rest. I mean, that's what happened in Namibia. Um, we just sort of forgive and forget and move on. And actually bringing up all these things from the past is probably going to be more destabilizing. That was one of the arguments. But then there was a lot of push from civil society groups, actually, a lot of them sort of liberal leaning. So one of the, the deputy chairperson of the South African TRC, Alex Burain, was actually someone that pushed for the TRC um, quite strongly, wrote personal letters to Mandela, set up conferences, got um, you know funding from George Soros to um, actually fund these, um, to fund the project of having a truth commission, got people from, you know, Latin American experiences, from Chile, Argentina, where they had had truth commissions. And it was sort of like a ground up thing, which then brought in political buy-in. And so it was a compromise. It was the result of, a, of an intense political compromise. And to what extent then, given how much of a compromise it sounds like it was, what extent has it had much of an impact uh, at the different registers that you're talking about? So on the context of amnesty or you know justice, for instance, if you just talk about the issue of justice, one of the main criticisms of the TRC, which I think is probably the strongest one, is that the way that the TRC defined what a victim was, was very narrow. So it was, they defined a victim as someone who'd experienced torture or severe ill treatment mm. But although apartheid as a system had been called a, a crime against humanity, the other more structural policies of apartheid, like Group Areas Act, um, like Bantu Education. What was the Group Areas Act? The Group Areas Act is was the racial zoning policy, mm. so which said only people from certain races could live in certain areas. So that was from 1960, and from there, people were actually physically moved from their houses. So mm. one of the strong, the probably well-known stories is the District Six, also Firetown, where where communities were literally bulldozed. Houses were just cleared because they were seen as you know brown spots or black spots, with mm. what they were called in cities, like they weren't. Like people just had to be moved out. So people who were victims of Group Areas Act, people who lost their home. My father was actually, his family were forcibly removed from their oh. home in an area called Constantia, which now is one of the most affluent areas in in Cape Town. Mm. Um, so his family was moved to an area called Grassy Park, which is on the Cape Flats, which was a colored area. So these people who were also victims were not included as victims. So these broader structural issues were were ignored by the TSC. And this has enduring effects because, for instance, now still people who are classified as victims, um, according to the TRC's characterization of victims, can still apply for certain... Well, first of all, they got reparations at the time. Mm -hmm. It took a long time, actually. But um, now I actually saw recently that people who are, uh, who are victims can apply for things like... And their families can apply for like funding for... For, for tertiary education and so forth. So there, there seem to be, although it's very slow and I don't know how well it's administered, but in terms of impact, the TRC still, I think, had an impact on the way sort of contributing to this, as they called it, bridge building process to try and sort of, I mean, it uncovered a lot of facts about 
gross human rights violations, even according to their narrower um, characterization, but also to just reduce the amount of deniability mm. um, because, you know, there were all these little leaks of what was happening in in certain, um, like death squads. There were death squads from uh, of the apartheid regime that were, you know, basically assassination units, um, which was being called, you know, fake news by a lot of white people. Um, be like, you know, this can't be. Like, this isn't this isn't what the apartheid regime is doing. So, you know, even just exposing those things can be very, very powerful. The fact that it was televised, right. that people, you know, sat in front of their television screens and could see people testifying about what happened to them or, you know, even perpetrators saying, yeah, I did this. Um, that is, I think, something still even on on that level can be socially, you know, powerful. So you would say that on, on a cultural level, on a societal level, that there was some impact and... Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, if, if only, you know, the fact that it was meaningful for people who participated... And often it's, it's quite easy also from an academic point of view to say why a certain truth commission or commission of inquiry in general failed in certain respects. But often it's actually the population that pushes for it themselves, the victims that actually want something like this. So it's definitely useful. But And also things like security sector reform. The TRC also made recommendations into that. The TRC had business hearings, institutional hearings into the medical field, into religion. It, had here, it proposed that a wealth tax be paid by all businesses, which was also quite controversial because yeah. on the one hand, it made these very you know, individual um, things. But on the other hand, then it made these kind of broad um, propositions that there should be a wealth tax. Which seems to be out of their jurisdiction. Exactly. Um, it really was. But because the TRC was also, it was uh, many years, it sort of it changed form. On the one hand, it began by focusing on victims mm. and a victim-centered truth, but then it shifted to amnesty hearings, which was then it kind of became the semi- legal process where mm. it had to apply a different burden of truth because if you're going to you know identify if you're going to identify whether someone should qualify for amnesty or not it's a completely different application of law and and theory compared to if you're just letting someone sort of tell their story and take that as a as enough to say that yes a human rights abuse has taken place i think that Claire's right to say that on a particular register, it was a, it was it, it could be interpreted as a useful thing, and and that point is well taken. But even though it recommended these progressive sounding policies like the wealth tax, it couldn't implement them mm -hmm. because it was outside of its jurisdiction. But also, it was taking place within a broader political and historical context. So while the TRC was being formulated, and while um, these hearings were being had, the contest of ec economic policy was being had. And because there was this shift, as we said, from a social democratic redistributive focus towards this neoliberal leaning macroeconomic policy in gear in 1996, um, we have a post-apartheid dispensation 25 years down the line, which has not made a significant indent into the economic structure, the social structure of society. And this is why there's deep frustration. And this is why the TRC is not doesn't have a glowing reputation among uh, young activists today. So I, I think it's just important to 
to raise that and to say why, again, much like Mandela, there's a sort of a package of the transition with the, the, the TRC is included within that. And the sentiment goes that it was part of this broader sellout, which of course, it's a narrative that has its limi limitations, but it's an expression of where we are 20, 20 years down, down the line. And of course, Canada has had its own Truth and Reconciliation Commission to look at abuses against Indigenous population here. What's you guys' sense of what, if any, parallels there are, what relationship there might be between the TRCs of each country? What I've read about it is that it, it seems to be happening at this, this register of the sort of cultural reconciliation but also the sort of public acknowledgement of the crimes of the past, which probably, you know, weren't known. It, it, it's quite astounding to see the, the project of these residential schools. It's, I mean, I never knew about it, and I'm sure like white South Africa during apartheid, there probably was a denying that this, our government has been doing this for a century. You know, the question then is, you know, what now, right? Okay, so if you have these, you've had 6,000 victims or so testifying, which is powerful. You've got their stories. But what what exactly is next? Because in the context, truth commissions are traditionally used in the context of transitions from a form of authoritarian rule to democracy so that there'll be other institutions that accompany something like a truth commission Whereas in Canada, you know, you're not in the context of a transition. What is happening in terms of structurally addressing the causes of those, you know, human rights violations? What is the ideology that underpinned, you know, the continuation of this treatment of Native people? But of course, then, of course, making the comment, making the statement that what happened in this country was cultural genocide that is that is powerful uh, but you know what what actually happens next is i think will remain to be seen in canada yeah i think one of the things that's interesting is that even over the last maybe since i was in high school uh when i was in high school in grade 10 was the first time where a geography teacher kind of seemingly to avoid coming up with a lesson plan just put on a movie for us about the residential schools and since then, I've heard from other people that there's been more like percolating uh, into the school system of telling kids about the residential school experience. And so that that slowly is coming to be somewhat mainstream as knowledge, but not something that necessarily like shakes the foundation of legitimacy of Canadian society, but still as a, oh, that was really bad that, you know, that happened. And in addition to that, more and more spaces, first like activist spaces, but now even academic and other you know, official spaces will start with a land acknowledgement that you guys might have Noticed seen that. already. Yeah. Particularly in British Columbia, not so much here, um, but everywhere I went in, um, when I was living in Vancouver a few years ago, every talk, every event was, there was a recognition of, mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, we tend to, to smirk at these big, nationalist things like, you know, South Africa's new flag with the transition and changing our national anthem to include all these languages. And these things, although they're just aesthetic and they can be, you know, brushed off as something, oh, you know, look at this PR exercise, they're also quite meaningful. I mean, so to have something like a, a truth commission that is focused on, you know, reconciliation of 
you know, of this history, but also of, you know, society and acknowledging the past and making sure we have reparations and so forth. I think also on like a basic level, there needs to be a real sense that the society is actually judging itself. Mm -hmm. And from there, what is coming from that judgment? What are the actual material things? Um, is it just sort of, you know, helping financial aid with these communities? Or is it actually like, how are we going to shift society? Um, how are we going to shift balance of power in, in the state? How are we going to make sure that people language is in our national anthem i mean it's something it seems quite trivial but it's something it's so it's so basic it's so trivial because it seems so basic but not even that basic thing is is being done here so the truth commission if it's going to try and be a conduit to something else it needs to think about what that something else is no definitely i think leftists we tend to as you guys are saying we tend to dismiss these like symbolic things as being not enough and and in many ways, they are definitely aren't enough, but there is something to them that I think has some effect on the psyche of the population, however minuscule, that does seem to do something. Like we had met a teacher from New Zealand, and she was saying that uh, she was comparing that here, you guys don't seem to learn any indigenous languages in school. It's not offered where in New Zealand that's something that they're really working to incorporate. And we can sort of dismiss that and be like, oh, that's such a you know, superficial tokenistic thing. But mm. here, if you talk to many students, they, they probably wouldn't be able to name you a single indigenous nation, much less a language. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, mm -hmm. that does contribute in some sense to erasure of indigenous communities here. And coming from the outside, it's it's obvious. It's it's striking. The only the only other experience that I've had um, that, that 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 is similar is uh, when I visited Australia. That the same level of erasure happened there and uh, and still occur today. But this question of uh, also this uh, the the Canadian identity and nationhood and how to balance you know this this inflow of migrants from from all over the world, Canada as an immigration. You know, if you go into the Canadian immigration website, you know, it's it's you know it's really it's really given to you that this is this is what Canada is about. We're an immigrant multi multicultural society. But at the same time, how do you how do you think about that with thinking about the indigenous issue at the same time? And an interesting debate that I've encountered recently is whether or not these new migrants should be considered settlers right. too. And it's interesting because you can draw an analogy within, actually, we, we mentioned Nelson Mandela and Robert Zubukwe earlier in South Africa and the fissures between the ANC and the PAC, because this was precisely one of the issues. What do you do with the forced Indian indentured labor, the slaves from South Asia, the mixed race Creole population, so-called colored population in South Africa? Are they settlers too, like the whites were settlers? Of course, the ANC didn't think so eventually. Their conception of nationhood went a different way. Which is probably why it it won out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different context in in, in Canada, but it's interesting to see these these um, these fruitful comparative observations and, and and lines of and lines of thinking. Yeah, because I, I think one of the other things I was reading was that initially, when the ANC was sort of forming and grouping, the apartheid regime tried to paint it as very uh, Africanist, and it encouraged other racialized or colored populations to form their own groupings. Yeah, so the so the, the apartheid regime, because we had this hyper-racially segregated society where your, your movements were basically uh, policed according to the, the, the color, the shade of, of your skin, 
it was difficult for a political movement to form on a sort of a non-racial basis. So the ANC was in the 50s was part of a, a, a formation called the Congress Alliance. And the Congress Alliance was made up of progressive uh, white uh, people, communists and liberals. Um, the name escapes me now. Uh, but um, then there was the, the the Colored People's Congress and the Indian People's Congress and then the African Congress. And they sort of managed to work together in some way. So the Freedom Charter, the ANC's Liberation Manifesto, was drawn up at Cliptown where these groups all got together. So the ANC's non-racialism is also another, it's, it's an interesting conversation to have the formation of this non-racial or multi-racial ethos within the ANC was a process that took that took place over time. In terms of uh, the apartheid ideology, it's very interesting because Vavut, who was the prime minister, the most notorious prime minister, uh, apartheid prime minister, who was assassinated in the 60s, his rationale for, for apartheid was that, you know, people are culturally distinct from one another and so you know the africans are happy amongst the africans so we are we are actually realizing kwame and krumah's dream about pan-african self-determination by giving you know a, a stretch of land the bantu stands because the, the africans must be and the same thing goes with the in, indians have their own consciousness their own way of being and, and so on so it was a very it's a very different form of ideological legitimation to the sort of outright civilize, civilizing mission that we've seen elsewhere, like in Canada, for example. Well, just, just the point that we also tend to forget that the ANC was formed in 1912. It's an extremely old organization and it has shifted over time. So as Michael said, the development of this non-racial ethos was something that really did develop over time and perhaps, you know, Canada is sort of facing these issues that other societies have been grappling with these for quite some time. Yeah, because we can even have a debate about whether or not the ANC has really embraced a non-racialism or whether they've embraced a sort of a multi-racialism. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a technical debate that one can get into. But um, the point is that this was made through struggle. It was made through debate. Through debate and through through being in the trenches with mm. with with people, and that created the grounds for this new form of nationhood or ideology of nationhood for the ANC. And how late in the struggle did that happen? A big a big um, debate in the ANC was whether or not to allow so-called colored people or so-called Indian people mm. or, and white people into the organization and. There was the steady acceptance that this would have to be the case within the leadership of the ANC. Also, it's interesting because the leadership of the ANC, many of them were communists too. And there were no racial barriers in the Communist Party from, from the beginning, really. I mean, the communists started from, from the 1920s to deracialize and sort of and make an effort to, to ensure that it was a non-racial party. But it caused a split because there were people within the ANC who thought that it should be African only. Mm. And this was happening sort of as late as the 1970s. And I can't remember the exact date when it was official that you could join the ANC as a white person or as a so-called, but it was quite late on in the game. It, it's, if, you, if you look at the history of the ANC in total, right from 1912 until now, predominantly it would have been an African, mm. 
and this would have been, of course, it was it was because of pressures from the top, but also because there was a real sentiment that this needs to be an African only organization. In on the Canadian left, there is this kind of maybe an earlier stage of trying to think through these things because there is a stratification that's drawn in the left. You know, when you're like, okay, you have indigenous people and everyone else is settlers, or then the ones who were forced to be here, they're not settlers and they're migrants. And so in some ways, I mean, maybe because I've come across this so often that it, it stopped, I've stopped thinking of it as a useful conversation. And if you try to do it, there's like, okay, who was forced to be here and who's not forced to be here and who's oppressed while being here, who's not oppressed by being here. Like the kind of fragmentation that that creates on the left, I think that's partly what's to blame for like how completely useless the left has been that we can't do anything because we're too busy trying to figure out who's winning the, you know, the oppression game. Yeah, it's it's something that um, because of enduring inequality and lack of access to to opportunities and things, it's, it's a very interesting question, uh, especially with more recent kind of returning to issues of decolonization um, among the born frees to say that although we transition, we still, you know, look up to these white or colonial standards and so forth. But it's a difficult position because you have groups of the colored population who now don't feel that they are actually represented in the ANC anymore, mm. that it has always been black-led. And now, um, you know, the colored, the colored community, there are certain groups now which you see a sort of colored nationalism mm. emerging as well, saying that, you know, actually the colored, I'm actually, a, I'm a, an indigenous person, actually, I'm more Khoisan, mm. and so I should get, you know, first claim to land because actually the so-called black people are from you know other parts of Africa mm. and they're you know the Bantu people are so it gets very very tricky it gets really it can get really nasty um especially with you know the slipperiness of racial terms um, and what they actually signify and I think that the ANC has always been ambivalent about this question um there's another a sort of a movement an anti-apartheid radical Marxist movement in South Africa, which doesn't exist anymore, but it did exist during this time in the 1950s where this conversation about who should be a settler, who's 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 a settler, who's native and so on, called the unity movement. Mm. And their position was that, well, if you're a year, you're a year. And we don't have to have this conversation about origins. It's anyone that's here as a citizen and, and so on. But that, that was a minority, that was a minority view. And I think it's still is a minority, mm. a minority view. Unfortunately, yes, this, the conversation about decolonization quickly drifts into this quest for authenticity, quest for origins, indigeneity, and so on. Yeah. yeah. Should we take a break at this point and continue the discussion in the next segment? Sure. So I'm going to continue chatting with Michael and Claire-Anne and we'll make the interview available next week. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.